All right, good morning, everybody. You guys doing all right today? All right, well, I got, we can just go home right now if you want to. I mean, come on, if you guys are thankful for the presence of God and Jesus pursuing you and kicking down walls and climbing mountains to go after you, amen. Hey, I want to take a quick second and honor a very special person in the room. My mama is in the house. Come on, give it up for my mama. It's a beautiful woman. And uh, she's an amazing, amazing woman of God. She's been hanging out with us. We've been thankful to have her. And, uh, and she can take a lot of responsibility for who I am today. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. She raised me. We are starting a new series today, and it's called God Never Said That. God Never Said That. And uh, we're going to be talking at some cultural beliefs, some phrases that for years, even within church culture and Christians, these phrases that people have attributed to God, the problem is God never said them. God never said them. Now, we've all probably had something that we said that we forgot we said. I don't know if anybody can relate to this in your home. You ever had your family where you just, that you, you're like, no, I never said that. And your family's just insisting that you said something. You said it a certain way. And you're like, no, I didn't say that. And then they show you a text, like a little smart aleck. Like, see, you said it. Like, okay. Well, there are some things that happen like that. But there's a lot of these things like, like God never said these things. And, uh, but over time as a culture, if you'll notice, a lot of times as a culture, if we say something enough times, people will just start believing that it's got to be true. And I think even around, among church culture and Christians, there's been a few things that they've been said enough times that we start wanting to believe, well, that, yeah, that's, that's right out of the Bible. That's in that book in the Bible, Zephaniah 4. Because, because we, we kind of like how some of these phrases sound. We like how they feel, but we can also learn from culture that just because culture says something enough times and wants to believe that it's true or does something enough times to want to make or to believe that it's a good thing to do doesn't mean that it's a good thing to do. There's a lot of things that happen over and over and over and over again in culture and they become popular and they become trendy and in reality they just need to stop. Like every Fortnite dance, please stop. Just stop. We're moving on. In Jesus' name. Here's some examples of some things that we're going to maybe even teach on over the next few weeks. Some phrases. Everything happens for a reason. Really. Well, I mean, everything does happen for a reason, but not everything is attributed directly to God. Things happen because we have things like gravity. If you jump off a cliff, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't blame it on God. We have free will. People make stupid decisions. We have an enemy who hates us, and he has power on this planet. And sometimes God allows things to happen. But does everything happen for a reason? No, but God can use anything for a reason. But not everything happens for a reason. Another one, God will never give you more than you can handle. Really. <laughs> the problem with that phrase is, God is only interested in giving you more than you can handle so that he can handle it. 
But a lot of times we'll hear those things like, man, I, just, I know God, God says he'll never give me more than I can handle, but it's not. He never said that. He wants us to have to trust in him and believe in him and have faith in him. And here's another one. Sex is bad. Now, you may have not heard it said exactly like that, but over the course of your time around church, growing up in church, you've probably been fed this idea like, we don't talk about sex. It's unclean. Like, really, how'd you get here? Uh, some, some technology I don't know about? We might actually talk about that one, maybe even next week. God wants your money. That one's embarrassing. But I know that it is a phrase or an idea, a concept that a lot of people have bought into. Like, God just wants my money. And that's why they don't go to church. And God never said that. God says he wants your heart. And it just so happens that we live in a world where so much of our heart can be attached to our money. So he really, he does. He does want all your heart. But he never said he wants all your money. So here's a false theological belief we're going to look at today. God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. Does God want us to be happy? Yes. Yes, he actually does. Now, I just want to preface this by saying some of y'all are already thinking this way. Well, God doesn't care about us being happy. He wants us to have joy. And you're right. And I've said things like that. I've said things like that. But the truth is this. God does want you to have joy because joy is not based on situation and circumstance. But if you are pursuing him the way he's called you to pursue him, you will have joy and happiness because it'll be a byproduct of living in obedience to God. That's the way it works. But that's what we're gonna talk about today. It says this in Psalm 68.3, but, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy. Everybody say happy. happy. And joyful. And joyful. Okay, so I, I, I will say that a lot of times in the word of God, these things are directly connected to each other. Like, hey, joy and happiness, these things kind of coincide. But I do believe that God wants us to be happy. But is the pursuit of our life, is God's will for the pursuit of our life to ultimately be happiness? No. That's not his will. That's not what he's called us to ultimately pursue. And I think there's some false theology around the subject of happiness. And I want to talk about a few of these. One of the false the theologies around this is I feel happy, so it must be okay. I feel happy, so it must be okay. And here's the thing. Our culture bows down to this concept. Like, if it makes you happy, then do it. But this thinking will cause you to justify a lot of really bad decisions over the course of your life. Like, yeah, I know I made a covenant with this person, but this other person makes me more happy. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? All the heartache that's surrounded with those types of thinkings. Shopping makes me happy. So every time you see something you want, you buy it. And the amount of debt that is crippling people and has people in bondage to where they can't even fulfill their calling. They can't even begin to Invest in the kingdom, it's heartbreaking. Eating makes me happy. Come on, how many of y'all eating makes you happy? 
Eating makes me happy. I'm going to give me some happy right after this service. <laughs> but the problem is if we just give in to every craving, like I just saw, I wanted it, so I ate it. And are we taking care of our temples? Are, 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 are we the vessel that, that we need to be so that God can use us and be glorified through us? My addiction makes me happy. And so now your addiction has become a part of who you are. The problem is it's always temporary. Like you'll get that happiness, but it is fleeting. It, it just happens and then, it's, and then it's gone. The great theologian Cheryl Crow said it this way. <laughs> you didn't know she was a theologian, did you? If it makes me happy, then it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the heck are you so sad? I have to go with the pastor version, okay? We're in church, people. But I think even culture is cueing in on the fact that, hey, we keep doing these things over and over and over again, and are we happy? Yes, but only for a moment. And then we have to go and find something else, and we have to up the ante in order to find happiness. And at the end of the day, we're not really finding happiness. And why is it that culture and the world and the lost are not really finding happiness? Because they don't know the source of true happiness. They're not pursuing him, but some of us are in the same place. Some of you, you're, you're, you're Christ followers. You call yourself a Christian. But the truth is you're not finding true joy and happiness in your relationship with God, but it's simply because you've impeded him as your source. There's things that we allow in our lives that I allow in my life that keep me from experiencing this incredible dialogue and flow of relationship between me and my heavenly father. And in those seasons of my life, I will lack true joy and happiness. It says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And this is what can happen if we go with, I feel happy. I feel happy. Another false theology. I don't feel happy, so I need to escape. I need to get out of here. So every time discomfort, pain, delay, like the timing isn't working out the way you want it to, or inconvenience, suffering, obstacles in your life, when those things come up, it's like, then I need to get out of here. And so you church hop, and you job hop, and you relationship hop, and you marriage hop, you diet hop. Because you're looking to try to find fulfillment. And if it gets to a place where it's not working out the way, or it's uncomfortable, or it's hard, or there's a struggle, or there's any kind of resistance, it's like, well, then I'm just going to go find something else or someone else. But that doesn't lead to happiness. Another one, I am not happy, so God is not good. I'm not happy, so God is not good. When we don't get what we want or what we pray for, we lose hope in God. God, don't you want me to be happy? God, didn't you hear me? Didn't you hear me when I told you what is best for me? Why aren't you doing that? Why is it taking so long? Why aren't you answering the prayer? And everything around you 
is going to be really frustrating and you're going to want to distance yourself from God because ultimately you're not going to trust him. Relationships are built on trust. And so you feel like if God is really good, then he'll give me what I want. And because he's not, I can't trust him in relationship. And so I'm going to distance myself from him. But if God gave you everything that you wanted when you wanted it, then God wouldn't be your God. God would be your slave. And God is not here to ultimately serve us. We're here to serve him. But what God knows is in the midst of serving him, we are the ones that get to benefit. We're the ones that get to actually find what we really need. He gives us the desires of our hearts. He puts the right desires in our hearts. I'm not happy, so God is not good. Another way that you could say this is, God, you are good when you do what I think that you should do when I think you should do it. Then you're good, God. But none of us would even come close to admitting that we'd have that kind of conversation with God, but our actions and my actions have shown otherwise. But typically speaking, when we're facing tragedy or difficult times in life, we don't say, you are my Lord, you are the Lord of my life, and I agree with your timing. Like we don't typically say those types of things. We start questioning the goodness of God. Another false theology, I know what makes me happy. I know what makes me happy. Whew. The problem is most of us don't actually know what really will make us happy. And I know what you're thinking, like, well, I know me pretty well. You don't know you as well as God knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He was the one that fearfully and wonderfully made you. He knows you infinitely more than you even know yourself. And so he is the one that knows what you need. But because of this misplaced idea, we chase idols, money, and pleasure, and comfort. All striving after being able to control the outcome of our happiness. Like, I know, so I'm going to control this. Whatever it takes. It's important that we talk about this because chasing our version of happiness is going to cause massive destruction. It ruins marriages. It shatters families. It splits churches. It delays people's calling and their ability to fulfill their purpose. And all for what? All for this momentary dopamine called happiness. Like it's literally a chemical that's released in, your, released in your brain that for a temporary amount of time will make you feel complete. But there is a happiness that's much bigger than that. And so if happiness isn't the whole goal or the end goal, what is our goal? Let's look at this text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You, don't know, you didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says you must be holy because I'm holy. Mm, that's pretty hard hitting. I mean, even just reading that verse, I, there's, you can feel heavy about this. 
if you have the wrong idea and misconception about what holiness is. And I find that a lot of people don't actually understand what holiness is. For some people, they've heard that word so many times growing up around church that it's just become white noise, like, right, holy. Uh, uh, it's unobtainable, and so I'm not even going to listen. And then other people have this concept of holiness being that somehow you're this perfect supernatural person, super spiritual. Some of us, when we hear the word holy or we think about a holy person, we think about this pretentious person who is detached from the world and is irrelevant and hypocritical. But neither of those are right because the word holy simply means to be consecrated and set apart. To be set apart. In other words, to be different. To be uncommon. To not look like everyone else and everything else. To be holy. And in the word, it talks about this in many different ways. We serve a holy God. He's in a league of his own. He is set apart. There is no other God like our God. The Holy Bible, there's no other book like this. It is uncommon. It is different. No other book is like this book. That's what makes it holy because it's set apart. It's set apart. Not the Bible itself. Not the pages. But the message. In the heart of a heavenly father who gave it to us. It's set apart. It's holy. It's uncommon. In the Bible talks about holy ground. We sang about that this morning. In Exodus, it talks about Moses encountering the burning bush and the angel saying, you need to take off your shoes. You're getting ready to walk onto some holy ground. But what does it mean? It simply means when we put ourselves in a position, we posture our hearts and realize that the place that we are in is where the presence of God is going to come. And it's just you saying, I don't deserve it. There's nothing that I can do to earn it. But I invite the holy presence of God to be here where I stand. Make this holy ground. Uncommon, set apart different. And in Jesus' name, the mission of our church is that our cities, our communities, our neighborhoods, and our schools are holy ground. They are set apart. That whether the people that walk them and walk those pieces of property see it or understand it or not, what they don't realize is they are a part of the kingdom of God. That our city will be set apart that our community will be sanctified and consecrated and different than the rest of the world for the glory of God. Holy, set apart, different. God is looking for a people who are different, consecrated, set apart. This doesn't mean that you're better than anyone. It's actually the opposite. It's you realizing just how jacked up you are and you need a holy God to make you holy, to put his holiness on your ungodliness.
but it does mean you're different. It means you should look different. You may have heard it said, well, God wants you to be holy, not happy. Well, which is it, holy or happy? Like, do you have to pick? Like, are you a holy roller or a happy heathen? Pick, you gotta pick one or the other. You gotta choose. You can't be one or the other. It's one or the other. The problem is the people that seem to be holy don't look happy. And the people that say that they're happy don't look holy. And it breaks my heart that on the whole, the world looks at the body of Christ and says, why would we ever wanna be one of you? You are miserable. You are judgmental, you are critical, you are hypocritical, you are opinionated on social media. Why would we ever wanna be a part of you? Not everyone though, because there is in Jesus' name a remnant of the true body of Christ that is walking in the power of his Holy Spirit that has something that the world is desperate to have. We should be the happiest people sucking air on the planet. We have every reason to be full of the joy of the Lord, to be full of happiness, to be full of laughter, to be full of energy and creativity. We should be a people that when the world looks, they say, I don't know what it is, but I've got to have what they have. I wanna take whatever they're taking. I'll smoke it if I have to, but I want it in Jesus' name. But guess what? The only way that we are truly ever going to have what the world truly needs, we have to be consecrated, set apart, different. So how can I be holy and happy? Look, I love making my kids happy. I don't know any parent that doesn't like making their kids happy. You know, the phrase happy wife, happy life, right? One of the things that makes your wife happy is when your kids are happy. And so I like my kids being happy. But the thing is, I'm not gonna give them whatever they want whenever they want just because they think that that's what makes them happy. Why? Because I have a different perspective than they have. We're climbing this tree of life and I'm a few branches ahead of them. So I've got a clear view of, the, of life and the things that they actually need that's gonna actually make them happy. And so I don't give them everything they want when they think they want it, but I still want them to be happy. My kids begged for a puppy for three years and I want, wanted to give them a puppy. I also wanted the puppy to stay alive <laughs> because as happy as my kids are with a puppy, they're that much more happy when the dog is living. And so I knew that they needed to mature a little bit so that they could help keep the dog alive. And there was nothing like, I was so excited when I got to give them that puppy and the, the looks on their faces, the joy that hit them. There's nothing like it. But sometimes they get out of line and think that they know what's best. And so they go and try to get their own idea of happy. But any kid that ever gets everything that they want when they think that they want it, nobody wants to be around those kids. And if you've never seen this happen, you have never been to Walmart. 
Because I promise you just hang out in that place long enough, you're gonna see what it looks like when there is a kid that is being raised to believe that they should get whatever they want when they want it. I promise, just stand, just hang out around the checkout lines. Get a snack, a little drink, sit back and watch. You know, because when they're at the checkout, they're not moving anymore. So they got all that low hanging fruit right there. All that stuff. And so those kids are begging and just saying, I want this, I want that. No. And then every demon in hell is manifesting through these children. <laughs> It'll motivate you to want to discipline better. But when I discipline my kids, look, I wish, how many of you parents wish that your kids would understand that it's not fun for you to discipline? Like, I don't know one parent's like, I just, you know what I love after a long day at work? <laughs> ah, just battling the traffic and all the other crazies out there. What I love is being able to come home and have to spend 30 minutes disciplining my child. <sighs> Nothing more fulfilling than that. I have to sit down, coach them, give them biblical principles and then correct them and discipline them. And I don't know any kid that's ever agreed with it. I don't know any kid that's ever been like, you're right, I need a spanking. You're totally... I agree. Thank you so much for correcting the course of my life. Mind blown, I see it. And how many of you ever remember your parents saying something like this? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And like, really, big boy, give me the paddle. I'll show you something. But there is some truth in it. Because the truth is, it's not something that we enjoy but we are interested in our kids understanding what brings them true joy. And we know that if it goes unchecked and uncorrected, they are gonna be miserable and they're gonna make everybody else miserable too. And we all probably know somebody who is an adult that has lived their whole life under the mentality that they should get what they want when they want it. And they're miserable to be around because they move back into your home. <laughs> that may be a little too close to home. <laughs> By the way, sometimes when you are not acting consecrated, sometimes when you forget that you are set apart, God will correct you because he loves you. Because he's interested in you being different and set apart. Because he knows that that's the only way you're gonna find true happiness. So how can we live holy and happy? First of all, leave, leave, live with a clean heart. Live with a clean heart. So what do I love? What makes me happy? Uh, getting a new gun makes me happy. Getting a new piece of camping equipment makes me happy. Steak makes me happy. <laughs> Tacos makes me happy. They just do. 
By the way, the best taco place that I've found in the state is in Conway. It's off Hark Rider next to McKinney Tire. It's a little Mexican grocery store with a little restaurant sitting next to it. They have what are, in my opinion, the best street tacos in the whole state. If you don't know what street tacos are, you just need to know you will question the source of the meat, but you don't need to worry about it because they're really just that good. <laughs> You're welcome. But you know what really makes me happy? Living with a pure heart. Living with a clear conscience. Being able to lay down at night and my mind not be racing. And wrestling with whether or not I should be convicted or feel condemnation about something that's happening in my life. I love not having to deal with it. I love being able to be in that place. The truth is I haven't always lived that way. And at a pretty young age, I was exposed to pornography. And pretty much all the way through my teenage years into college and the first couple years of my marriage, I struggled with lust and pornography. And I prayed hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, God, please take this away from me, take it out of me. And I believe that God forgave me every time I asked for forgiveness. I believe that he forgave me, but... But the truth is I wasn't going to find healing until I was obedient to his word because the truth is at that point I was a hurting member of the body of Christ. But until I could confess to the body of Christ, I couldn't be restored. And so I remember when I finally confessed to Cody and I finally confessed to my pastor like, hey, I've been struggling with this. I've been struggling with it for a long time. The guilt and the shame was lifted off to me instantly. It wasn't to say I'd never be tempted again. It wasn't to say I'd never struggle again. But the, the stronghold that the enemy was leveraging in my life by me keeping it a secret was gone. And so some of you are thinking right now, it's like, I don't know if it's okay for a pastor to talk about this or confess this in church. But what I understand is this, I am more than an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. And so I walk in freedom and I walk in triumph and I walk in courage and I walk in boldness and I walk in freedom because I recognize what I've been set free from and I couldn't be set free from it if I didn't confess it. I needed to confess it. And some of y'all still might be judging, but let me give you a stat. 90% of men would confess to looking at pornography at one point or another in their life. And the other 10% are lying. <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real struggle. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but ladies in the house, if you are married, I want you to know that God created you to be the number one accountability for your husband. You could be the key that will help them get set free from any kind of habitual sin, including lust but you will not be able to be that for your husband if you can't see them the way that Jesus does. Because the way that Jesus sees them is he separates them from their struggle and their sin. When God looks at us, he doesn't attribute us to our sin. He attributes us to his son. And so he can deal with the sin because he knows that our sin doesn't define us. 
And I promise you, the moment that you can understand the, the grace that God has given you to separate you from your issues and your struggles and be able to go to your husband and say, hey, do you struggle with this? And when he tells you he does for you not to react and yell and scream and get insecure and hurt about it, be able to look at him as a son of God and a brother in Christ and say, hey, we're gonna figure this out and I'm gonna help you. We're gonna get the accountability. We're gonna get the filter set up. We're gonna do whatever we have and you're gonna walk in freedom because you're gonna achieve everything that God has set for you to do in your life, which is first and foremost being the son that he's called you to be, then being my husband and then being a father to our kids. And you're gonna get that because you're gonna get free. And if there were more women that would approach it with that kind of understanding and approach it with that kind of grace, this is one of the number one things that is shutting down people's callings, I'm convinced, in the church. It's sexual sin. Why? Because it feels so shameful. Because it's about intimacy. Because it's private. Because it's all those things. And we need to blow the lid off of it so people can get set free and start walking in their purpose. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid. They did the opposite of what God wanted them to do. They hid. And I just feel like there might be some of you hiding. I don't know what it is that you're hiding. I don't know what the shame is. I don't know what the enemy has convinced you that you've got to keep a secret. I don't know what it is, but I do know that this could be your day. We have a prayer team every single weekend up here at the front ready to pray for people. And I promise you, they know how to keep something in confidence. If you just need to pray with a lady, you can just pray with a lady. If you need to pray with a man, you can pray with a man. But I would encourage you to get free. In James 5, it talks about, look, if you can confess your sin to God, he'll forgive you. The healing comes when you confess to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So live transparent before everyone or live authentic before everyone, but you've got to have a couple people you can be truly transparent with. If you're married, I hope that you can find that with your spouse, but you need to find it somewhere. You need somebody that's going to love you enough to ask you tough questions and not allow you to dodge the answers. Philippians 2.15 says this, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Let's be different. Let's be set apart. Let's be consecrated. Let's be people that don't hide sin, but we confess it so we can get healed. Because I promise you, there's a world that is desperate to be set free from the same thing. Live with a confident spirit. Live with a confident spirit. A confidence in God, just knowing that he will do what he says he's gonna do, that he is who he says that he is, but more importantly, that he, you are who he says you are. Like, what does his word say about you? Be confident about who you are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. For we speak as mass messengers approved by God to be entrusted with good news. Our purpose is to please God, not please people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. But there are some competing voices in your life to your confidence in Christ. The first one is this, it's the voice of culture. Look, culture is drifting drastically away from the things of God. You can't listen to the voice of culture. You can't listen to it, it's gonna pull you away from God. There's also the voice of the critic. The voice of the critic. Look, if you're gonna submit your life to God, you have to understand there's gonna be some people that don't like you, AKA haters. 
Look, there are some people drinking that haterade out there. And especially when you become a Christ follower, it's just going to happen. Jesus promised that it would happen. The voice of the crowd, just people, the loudness, the peer pressure. And if you have a fear of man or if you're a people pleaser, man, I promise you at one point or another, if you're not surrounding yourself with truth, you're not surrounding yourself with some amount of godly influence, the crowd gets louder and louder. And eventually you'll be convinced that they must be right and you need to do what they want you to do. That, thing hap- that same thing happened with Pilate when he was faced with passing judgment on Jesus. It says that they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The third time they demanded, or the third time he, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? This is Pilate speaking. I found no reason to sentence this man, so I will have him flogged, and then I'm going to release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Look, at one point or another, if you don't have someone speaking truth into your life and you're not speaking it in your own life and then applying it, I promise the voice of the crowd will get louder and louder until they convince you that it's truth. You gotta know what the truth is. It's also the voice of comparison. And I think this is one of the biggest ones that most of us struggle with. We live in a social media era where their comparison is rampant. So we're looking at how other people are raising their kids. We're comparing to how we're raising our kids. Shoot, you can't even celebrate a holiday anymore with feeling comparison. Trying to encourage your kids to make a little Valentine's box. People can put some notes in. So they use their own creativity and spend their time painting it and decorating it. And then you get to school. And you're like, I know that kid. There is no way that kid can make something like that. (laughs) Parents come walking in. They got hot glue burns all over their fingers. You're like, yeah. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a funny picture of a bigger issue. And that is we feel like, man, well, if I don't do that, and if it doesn't look the best, everyone's going to think I'm a bad parent. It's comparison. In Philippians 4, Paul was in prison, writing a letter to the church of Philippi. He said this, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as I am with much, with much as little. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full of hunger, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, whatever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. When you know who you are in Christ, because here's the deal. There is an enemy of contentment and happiness and its name is comparison. It'll take you out of your place. And what happens is when you start comparing, you start questioning whether or not God might have made a mistake. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You need to walk in a place of confidence. Number three, live with a clear mission. I'm getting ready to wrap this up. I'm thankful to be a part of a church with a clear mission. 
I'm so thankful for Pastor Rick and being obedient to the call of God to come to Arkansas. I'm glad that we have clear mission, clear vision. We're going to plant at least 50 campuses across the state of Arkansas. I'm so thankful for all that. I'm also so thankful for the men and women that have answered the call right here at this campus. And in so many unique and important ways, they've accepted a clear mission that helps them walk in their calling and purpose. And in that place, they are finding true fulfillment. We have our serve teams around here. It's a great example. And I want to encourage you, like we need more people on our serve teams. We have needs on all of our serve teams. We have legitimate needs. You may walk in and be like, man, it looks like everything's covered around here because we have amazing people. But you know what? We need more people. But the truth is this. We don't just need you. You need us. You need to have a mission. You need to have a place that you can use the things that God has placed inside of you. You will not find fulfillment. You will not find happiness until you've identified a clear mission that is not temporary, until you've identified a mission that is not just a means to an end of, of providing for your family, until your mission has to do with something that is eternal, until your mission can be attached to souls that can be attached to the kingdom of God, until you find that place, until you find and, and walk in a clear mission for your life, it's gonna be difficult for you to find true happiness. I could have people from our serve team come up here and give you testimony. And I believe so many of them would say the same thing. You know, when I signed up to service because I, I thought that maybe I could help. But then I realized as soon as I started serving that it was really more about what I needed than what I could give. Because as soon as I started serving, I tapped into the character of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. And when I tapped into the character of Christ, it helped me feel set apart different, consecrated. And in that place, I'm happy. I'm happy to live sacrificially. I'm happy to mop a floor, hand out a bulletin, change a diaper, find somebody a parking spot. It makes me happy to be a part of something bigger than me. If you wanna find it, you're gonna have to find a clear mission. One of the greatest desires of my life is that I can get to the end and stand before God without regrets, knowing that I just gave everything that I could. In 2 Timothy, Paul is getting ready. He's coming to the end of his life and he knows it. He's gonna be executed. And he says this to this young man that he's mentoring, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. Man, I love that picture. Like when my head hits the pillow at night, I, I, I wanna be able to say, God, I'm being poured out for you. I just wanna be poured out for you. And I know you might be thinking, well, you're a pastor. So are you. If you're a Christ follower, God has called you to the ministry. You have a ministry. Now, are you supposed to be up here doing what I'm doing? Most of you, that would freak you out. You would never wanna do this, but you have influence and you have a platform that I don't have. Find your mission, make it clear, and pour into it. And the truth is this, happiness is the byproduct of a life lived in love with Jesus. Your ministry is the overflow of your relationship with God. If you will pursue 
holiness. Let him put his holy on you. The overflow will be happiness. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. God does want you to be happy. He also wants you to to be uncommon, to be different. I know though that some of us have a false perception of who God is. This last week, one of my kids had a string of bad days and I was getting frustrated and I was getting impatient and I'm sure a lot of us parents can relate to this. I was just getting to a point, it's like, I don't, I don't know what else to say or how different to say it. I, I, don't, I don't know how to get through to them. And my desire truly is that they would just be able to achieve everything that God has for them. That's, that's really my desire. I won't say that there aren't times when I'm selfish. I won't say there aren't times when I'm just honestly embarrassed as a parent, like, God, why can't they behave themselves? Why are, why are they acting like this? There are times that I feel that way. But what I realized is that there was no way that I was gonna be able to motivate this child towards godliness and towards holiness when I was being so mean and impatient. And so I, I went in one morning and I just sat on their bed as they're getting ready and I just repented, I just apologized. I just said, hey, I want what's best for you. But I've been impatient, I've been mean, I haven't, I haven't been kind to you. I've been frustrated, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that I haven't been a good example of, of the way that God comes to you. The way your heavenly father loves you. I, I, I haven't been showing that the last couple of days and I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. But I know what's happened with some of you is you think that because of the mistakes that you've made, that your heavenly father is frustrated with you. That he's mad at you that he doesn't want anything to do with you and it's just not true. But I think there's some of you that you've just never had a concept of relationship with God because you've never accepted relationship with him through his son, Jesus. I'm not gonna stretch this out because the presence of God has been here all morning and I believe he's already been speaking to your hearts. And if you know that you're away from God, I just wanna let you know that you can come to him right now find forgiveness and find healing and find purpose. He wants to make you holy right now. But if you're here and you need to just come back to him or you're away from him and you need to surrender your life to him, nobody looking around, but I'm just gonna ask you, would you be bold enough to just confess, just admit it? Look, I've, I've confessed some things before you this morning because I know that that's when the power of God shows up. If you would be willing to admit something this morning, I promise you the power of God is gonna show up. If that's you, nobody looking around, put your hand up. As soon as I see your hand, I'll, you can put it down. You know you're away from God and you need a relationship with him this morning. Got it, thank you. Anybody else? Yes, yes, yes. Thanks guys, thanks for being bold. Anybody else, I need a relationship with God. Thank you, thank you, got it. 
Anybody else? I need a relationship with God. Got it. Thank you. Anybody else? Got it, bro. Respect that, man. Respect it. God sees it. He's going to honor it. Anybody else? I need a relationship with God. I'm away from him. Got it. Thanks, man. Anybody else? I need to rededicate my life to him. I need to come back to him. I want to surrender to him as my Lord and Savior. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Every person raise your hand. I would encourage you at one point or another, you go public with this decision. You'd let people know about it. Let people know as soon as the service is over. But at some point, go public through water baptism. It's just a symbol of you saying, I'm a Christ follower. And you'll have an opportunity to do that here in a few weeks. But right there in your chair, just talk to God and just say, God, here's my life. And I know that it's broken. I know I've made so many mistakes. I've sinned more than I can count. And I don't understand everything about your love. It's hard for me to understand how a loving God could love somebody like me. But right now I choose to believe. With, what, with whatever little amount of faith I have, I believe, I believe that you sent your son Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for me. And when he died, he went into the grave, but he didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the grave and he defeated my sin and he defeated death and he defeated my struggles and he defeated my addictions and he defeated all these things so that I could be made holy. So thank you, God, for making me like your son. Thank you. I repent. I stop. I turn away from doing what I've been doing. And I want to turn towards your plan, towards your purpose. God, help me to live with a clean heart. God, help me to live with confidence. God, help me to live with a clear purpose and mission in you. Father God, help us as a church in Jesus' name to be set apart, to be uncommon, to be different, to walk in the holiness that your son Jesus has provided for us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give God some praise in this place for all the people that made a decision this morning.